Welcome to the Serrano Brothers Podcast. We are twin brothers who are pastors in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. We talk about faith, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, culture, and anything else we think is interesting. Thanks for joining. Hey everyone, welcome back. Um, we are continuing our our uh, chats with bishop pre-nominees for the Sierra Pacific Synod uh, bishop election. And today we have with us the Reverend Dr. John Valentine. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. And um, we're kind of starting this off. Uh, tell us, where are you serving and what conference are you a part of? I serve as one of the pastors at Holy Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arenda, which is in the near East Bay. You who don't know, but in Oakland, uh, on the other side of the hills. Uh, nice. The other side of the Caldecott Tunnel. Uh, that is in the uh, Mount Diablo Conference which I have the privilege of serving as dean of, uh, following in the footsteps of one Jeremy Serrano, uh, <laughs> who was the dean prior to my deanship there. <laughs> and we all have a connection, right? So, so um, Josh... We do, we do have a connection. We should probably own up to that. Uh, <laughs> there is uh, one of these two uh, Serrano brothers uh, was my dean previously, and I am currently his dean. That would be Jeremy. Uh, and the other, uh, Joshua, uh, had the privilege, I had the privilege of working with him as a colleague uh, for four or five years uh, early on in his ministry. Uh, what a gift. It and it was a first call for me. And so I had the privilege, John, of uh, of serving with you. And I really appreciated that time together. Um, John, we we, uh, we want to start off by asking people, kind of getting to know you a little bit better. And so we thought we would ask this question is, do you have a childhood memory that is your favorite, whether it's inside or outside of the church? I have lots of childhood memories. My wife and I bicker about this all the time. She has so few memories of her childhood. My mind is just inundated with memories. Uh, one of my first memories, uh, I was a very young child. I remember standing at the window of our dining room, looking out and seeing a rainbow and never having seen a rainbow before to my recollection and just staring in wonder at it. Uh, and uh, I just curious memory up at this rainbow and looking at it and just being captivated by this rainbow. And in a certain way, uh, rainbows have always held a certain sense of wonderment and promise to me. Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. Do you have a like a, a favorite childhood memory inside of the church? Inside of the church, favorite childhood memory. <clears throat> uh, adolescent memory, perhaps. Uh, huh. It was uh, 
it was the week before confirmation when I was about to be confirmed as a ninth grader on in anticipation of Reformation Sunday and being called into the pastor's office for the pastoral interview. And Al Romerheim, who was the pastor at the time at, our, at, at the congregation I grew up at, uh, said, you know, you would be a fine candidate for ministry in the church. Wow. And I laughed in his face. You're 13 years old, 12, 13 at the time? Absolutely. Probably 14. Uh, wow. And I just said, there is no way, no way that I will be a pastor. He told that to my father. And 15 years later, when he was the... Uh, one who ordained me, uh, it was what goes around comes around. Right. Not the final laugh. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, people in the Synod um, who uh, aren't friends with you, they they seek the the public face of your ministry and you being a pastor, and they don't really know often what pastors do in their off time. Do you have any um, hobbies that you do regularly? Um, like, what do you do when you're not doing ministry? What do I do when I'm not doing ministry? Ah, wow. Right now I'm doing a lot of yard work. Uh, <laughs> is it fun? Not necessarily. Sometimes it's fun to see the end product and get things accomplished. And but but no, it's not a major remodel project on the outside of our of our house. And I invest much of my free time there. Uh, on my better days, uh, I either find myself hiking in the local hills. Or I find myself sailing on the bay. Uh, I love to sail, uh, and will take whatever chance I get to do that. Although I will confess that, given the chaos of ministry in our congregation over the course of the past six eight months, uh, really over the course of the past year, uh, I have not had a lot of time to spend on the bay. So, mm -hmm. are, are yeah. you a, like like do you do you have like a a I don't know anything about this. Do you have like a captain's license to be able to like take people out? I'm, I am part of a sailing club out of Richmond and <laughs> I have the liberty of taking out boats up to 42 feet of length and running all over the bay. And I will oftentimes, as my schedule allows, take clergy people out sailing. It's a great collegial experience. Indeed, indeed. Uh, that's really cool that you do that, that you, you take out colleagues sailing. And 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 I think that's a really great way to strengthen ties ties amongst clergy. So I, that's really cool that you that you do that. One of the joys for me is actually taking people out and seeing them form friendships with one, not with necessarily with me, but with one another mm -hmm. afterwards. I mean, it's just I I. I I see that the the fabric of our synod oftentimes frays, uh, and the only way we can defray the fabric is to weave those threads together back back together, uh, one 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 string at a time. 
just retying those knots. Uh, and that's how we're strengthened. So that's really great. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for saying that. Um, are there any spiritual practices that you cling to that, that any disciplines, spiritual practices that you cling to? Cling to, um, I will begin by, uh, telling you that my personality type I'm an Eastern uh, pastor about uh, spirituality and temperament. Uh, and the assertion of ESTP's work is prayer and prayer is work, uh, which kind of puts me in a place where oh, I need to be deliberate about taking time aside to pray. Hmm. Oftentimes for me, that is getting up in the morning and going for a walk mm. and just taking the cares of the day with me, sorting them through and saying, God, I'm giving these to you. Mm. They're not mine to handle alone. They're ours to handle together. Uh, so uh, my best prayer time is when my body is busy and my mind is not distracted. Mm. Uh, and so for me right now, that is going out for a walk in the mornings. Uh, and uh, then I tend to dive into the busyness of the day and get sucked in. Uh, yeah. So I know that Luther would say that he got down on his knees uh, early in the morning. Uh, I tend to get on my feet and going. Uh, but that is usually my best prayer time. I think that's really great that you say that because sometimes in order for us to calm ourselves, there are some of us who need to be active, you know, to quiet the mind, they need to move the body, you know? And, and the fact that you recognize that about your own spirituality and you dive into that, I think is a beautiful thing because some of us can't just stay on our knees and pray. It just doesn't work out that way, you know? And, and so the fact that you recognize that, I think also gives other people permission to go, oh, that's prayer too. And that's lovely, you know? So indeed, thank you. Indeed. Thank you for saying that. Right, right. All right, so we know... Pastor John, that ministry um, has ups and downs, and it has successes and failures. Uh, can you tell us a time um, that you've had a success and you're you're particularly uh, proud of that success? And, and when things are going rough in your ministry, you can think back on on the success that you uh, were a part of. You know, I would say the most, the moment in my ministry when I think the church got it right, per se, um, my first call, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. I was actually serving a congregation in the township of Paradise Valley, just at the nose of Camelback Mountain. Uh, and the congregation that I was serving as an associate pastor uh, at the time uh, was about a year into ministry. And the congregation uh, was approached by another congregation uh, in the, 
on the west side of Phoenix. Uh, the congregation was Alzona. And hear me out. It's amazing. Uh, Alzona was a congregation that was part of the, uh, the sanctuary trials. I don't know if you know anything about the sanctuary trials. Back in the late 1980s, there was a uh, movement called the Sanctuary Movement, which, which enabled, uh, which was about facilitating getting uh, Central American refugees out of war zones in Central America, Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. And so the uh, Sanctuary Movement was facilitating uh, the uh, support and care of uh, people who uh, had been, who were, who were escaping the wars. Uh, the FBI was convinced that this was an underground railroad of sorts, and they were going to shut it down. Uh, and as a portion of that, the congregation in the, the Arizona congregation actually had its Bible study uh, attended by a FBI agent, uh, uh, who was not uh, honest about? Uh, it, he, he was a spy. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was an undercover job. They sent an FBI agent in uh, with a wire uh, into a Bible study meeting, and uh, eventually the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, really fascinating story uh, in its own right. The pastor was Jim Oynos. Uh, Jim Oynos actually ended up testifying before the Supreme Court. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, Jim was uh, utterly exhausted, emotionally just trashed. Uh, and he needed a sabbatical. And his church council knew that he needed a sabbatical. And there was no one to give him a sabbatical because the congregation had no financial resources to do such a thing. Alzona knew that I spoke enough Spanish that I could lead worship. Their church council came to the church council of the congregation I served and asked if they could borrow me for six months. Hmm. Wow. The church council of the congregation I served uh, met. We talked about it. I said, at the end of the day, this is your decision, not mine. And I left the room. Mm -hmm. I said, you need to think about this. You need to pray about this. I will do whatever it is that you tell me to do because you are the ones who called me. And if you think that, you know, serving in this way is for the good of the gospel and the good of the church, I'm willing to be in partnership with you on it. I'm not going to make a decision one way or the other. I just turned it back to the church council. Got called into the church council meeting 20 minutes later, and they announced that for the next six months, I was serving gratis as the pastor of Alzona Lutheran Church, a gift from the people of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Paradise. Wow. What a beautiful story. It was, the most, it was the moment when I experienced church being church. Amen. Really Amen. supporting one another together. It's been, and so you asked me, what does it mean like to be a part? It, you know, it's not my success story. It's the church's success story. It's not about what I've done. It's about what, what we do together, how we support one another. And I just, 
when I feel despondent, like the church is just a human institution, I flip back to that story. And I remember that at least every once in a while, the church gets it right. Yeah. Amen, man. Amen. That's such a great, that's a great story. Hey, John, uh, uh, how did you, like you say, you spoke enough Spanish uh, to, to do worship. Where did you learn Spanish at? Uh, well, I took Spanish in high school and that didn't really take. But uh, when I was in, uh, I graduated from college. I graduated from the University of California. The University of California graduated me uh, and I took a year off, uh, my gap year as it were or one of my gap years. And I uh, became a house parent at an orphanage uh, about three hours south of Ensenada on the Baja Peninsula. And I was responsible for 15, six to 12 year old boys and they became my primary Spanish teachers. Uh, they, you know, we did homework together. I So, I know Spanish six to twelve year old. Uh, <laughs> in some ways, it, in some ways, it's really difficult because people hear my accent and they think, "Oh, you're really fluent." I say, "Well, I'm really fluent in third grader." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, uh, uh, you know, the the church has a uh, three expressions, right? There's church wide, there's the synod, and then there's the individual congregations. What, what do you think the primary of this? the primary function of the synod is and should be? Wow. Uh, what? The primary function of the synod, to me, the primary expression of the church is the congregation. And the synod is primarily about supporting ministry within the congregations. I, I don't know how many uh, people watching this uh, are aware, but in a certain way, the ELCA is a union of congregations. It is not a hierarchical church. Congregations come together to form the ELCA, and congregations can effectively leave the ELCA at their choice. And although our constitutions have a little bit to say about how you can or cannot get out, uh, at the end of the day, congregations can leave. Uh, so I see the primary function of the synod being uh, twofold, uh, to support congregations in their work and, to, and, and in part to do that primarily uh, by supporting pastors, uh, rostered leaders, rostered ministers in their work. Uh, so if you ask me what the primary function of the Senate is, what the primary responsibility is, it's it's about being of service to and support to uh, both congregations and those on the roster. So to expand a little bit on that, um, as bishop, how do you help facilitate that? Uh, effective call processes uh, is certainly one way that that happens. 
making sure that we have we, we are creating the best possible matches between uh, clergy people uh, and uh, congregations. Uh, I think compliance is a big deal. Uh, I hate to say it, but there are times when the uh, the congregations, you know, something happens in the congregation, uh, something happens with a rostered minister, and you find yourself having to do some really difficult and painful work, uh, getting someone out of a situation. Uh, we don't like to talk about that. Uh, we don't think that that's a big deal, but when it needs to be done, trust me, it it has to not only be done, but it has to be done well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, there is somewhere I recall uh, someone saying that the real jobs of the bishop are four things. And I know that one was call process and one was compliance. And uh, there were a couple of other things that were kind of along those lines. But but I, I really see those as, as being uh, you know, we don't like to think of the bishop primarily as, as a mid-level administrator or adjudicator, uh, but that's what our bishops do. That's what they are. That's what the office is designed to do, and it's what bishops uh, are functionally called to do. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's really good, and I think that leads into kind of the next question because there, there absolutely is that administrative portion of being a bishop. But there's also kind of a plan that we kind of expect bishops to have for the synod. Uh, and and I know that there's been a lot of talk of, of like a strategic plan. Um, I don't want to know what you think a strategic plan should be. I What I want to know is how would you go about making a strategic plan for our synod? Yeah, what would, what would the process be? What would the process be? Yeah. Well, I think it begins with identifying who we are. Uh, and this is not an individual identifying who we are. It's not even the Synod Council identifying who we are. It's about getting clear on our shared mission and our shared identity. One of the things that has been so difficult to watch in the Sierra Pacific Synod in the last 20 years is that we had that mission statement that had like 18 separate bullet points because we couldn't say no to anyone. Uh, it was painful to live with, you know, it was like everybody threw their stuff out and said, we think the Synod should do this. We think the Synod should be this. And then they got to a point where they didn't, they didn't want to do the hard work of sorting and prioritizing. And so they just said, yes, this is us. And they created a mission statement that, that was way too broad. Uh, that did not focus people's energy and attention. And I think the thing that needs to happen is we need to have an honest conversation about what we are going to do together and how we are going to be together. I'm reminded that for the Synod to be healthy, 
we're going to have to embrace honest disagreement rather than dishonest agreement. Mm. And I think we have embraced the spirit of dishonest agreement for far too long. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, do you have in, in your mind kind of some priorities that that you would go into the bishop's office with? Just as a follow-up to to what you were saying? I want to have good process. Yeah. I think it's not a it. I believe that a bishop doing their job well helps the whole of the entity to discover what the end, the totality of the entity sees its calling being. And God has given us one another, and we we, we live in this spiritual body, and and to let the you know to let the eye or the ear or the finger or the heart or one part of the body identify for the totality of the body what the body's job is uh, sometimes just it's not it it just doesn't work we right. need it we need to engage the whole of the community so my priority would simply be to create good process healthy process to my beloved uh, recently asked me, what would you want to do as bishop? And I would say, honestly, leave this synod healthier than I found it. Mm. it, it so in your... I think we need to get healthy, and we have not been healthy for a long, long time. In your paperwork, Pastor John you say that one of your gifts is to facilitate meaningful institutional change because countless good ideas are good ideas until we figure out how to actually make them happen. How can you facilitate meaningful institutional change? And can you tell us a story of when you've done this previously? I don't know if you have seen the, well, uh, there was that six minutes of fame conversation or whatever it was, and, and I referred to it, to it previously. Uh, but uh, the whole process of uh, compensation guidelines in the, in the Pacific Senate, this, the Pacific Senate Council back in the 19, mid-1990s wanted to redo compensation guidelines to become more attuned to where things were at. And they asked me to lead a process. And I had the joy of pulling together five church council pastor or five church council presidents and five rostered ministers from, from the Senate. And we sat together and we tried to, and, and together we did develop a process uh, that we then took out to the Synod and we used uh, Synod assembly and early attempts at those votomatic machines and, and you know, push, push button one or button three or whatever it is. Uh, and we did uh, quite a bit of uh, sorting of around priorities. 
with the whole of the Senate. So we had 500 people doing a survey for us. They, they thought it was kind of cute and they didn't realize it was, you know, that, that we were really fishing for particular information. They thought they were just practicing their voting skills. Uh, but we had uh, opportunity to really plumb the depths of what people thought about, uh, you know, why they wanted, uh, you know, what factors they wanted uh considered in the compensation guidelines, you know, what priorities, what values they wanted the compensation guidelines to reflect. And then after we took, we, we got all of that information, we, we distilled it down and came up with, you know, six or seven bullet points that eventually became uh, the, the factors that modified compensation for rostered leaders in the Pacific Senate. And, you know, so it was, at times it was a broad thing, at times it was a very particular small group conversation thing. Uh, but you know, we worked through it together and came up with something that, that's worked for the last 25 years almost. Uh, and and that's, been, that's been fun to watch. Uh, the Sierra Pacific Senate eventually co-opted those guidelines as their own, uh, but that was not the original source of them. Uh, well, sometimes we got to steal good ideas, you know? <laughs> right. That's all I do in ministry is steal good ideas. Um, that's well, great. That's I think that's a really John, great tangible example of, of institutional of, of, change. Yeah, thanks. And, thanks and for I that. Can, and I can tell you, Pastor John, that now uh, a question that I get every year is, well, how did the synod come up with this worksheet? Well, how did the synod determine this stuff? I am just going to give them your personal cell phone now. My <laughs> members can just call you, okay? He was the dude responsible for it. <laughs> and I will push it to the folks in the Pacific Ascended because they, you know, very specifically, they, this was not my idea. This was what they wanted to do. And it was, sure. it was just, it was something that worked amazingly well as a yeah. process. Yeah. We think that most, um, if if you do become bishop, uh, uh, you are obviously going to need to surround yourself with staff. And um, what do you think your staff, the giftings that they're going to need to have to complement your own style of leadership? Good question. Good question. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching on the text of Balaam and Balak. Ooh, not that doesn't show up too often in the lectionary, like ever. Mm -hmm. uh, but Balaam and Balak, a great story from uh, from uh, the Book of Numbers uh, that talks about the king who wants the king of Moab who wants you know this this prophet to come and and curse the Israelites for him. And I said, no, I can't do it. There's a weird interaction where. Uh, where the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and the, the rider on the donkey doesn't see the angel of the Lord. And chaos ensues. But, but the beauty of that story to me is that uh, sometimes we need the eyes of another uh, to, to, to endure the journey that we face, we need to have the eyes of others because others can see what we cannot. So my number one priority in terms of staffing 
would be to ensure that I am surrounded by people who don't see things the way I do. Uh, that we, uh, you know, that people's eyesight is different. You know, I I love using the analogy or, or in a in a conversation in a room, put something in the middle of the table and everybody says, you know, I can see what I can see from my perspective, but I can't see what you see because your perspective is slightly different or maybe completely different. Uh, you know, we may sit on the opposite sides of an object and I could tell you that there's a blue spot on that glass and you could say, no, there's no blue spot on it because there's no blue spot on my side. But, you know, it might be there. Uh, and needing to see through the eyes of another. Uh, so I think that, you know, that would be my number one priority uh, in terms of staffing. Uh, and really in terms not only of staffing, but structuring, one of the things I've, I've played with is the idea in, of, of creating something that would be uh, akin to a 360 uh, group uh, where one, uh, you know, where the bishop would, would gather together a team of people from throughout the synod that really uh, just uh, doesn't see things the way the bishop does. Uh, you know, that... You know, if the bishop is somebody who uh, is gifted is gifted in administration, well, you know, make sure that you've got people who aren't gifted in administration who need to be told in different ways and, and through different, you know, that the language of administration may leave them just going, huh? Or the language of numbers and statistics may need them going, leave them going, huh? Uh, you know, just diversity. Uh, we need to... We need to plumb that uh, rather than silo it. I, I really like what you're saying about that, Pastor John, because our synod is so big, right? We go from Elko, Nevada to the Oregon border down to the central coast. There are many different kinds of people in our synod, and they range from rural to inner city. And so the fact that you want to be able to get that whole perspective is seems really necessary, right? Because sometimes the Central Valley could feel left out of something, right? And and they have different ideas than people in the inner city or or the city, you know. So yeah. And and we live we are one of those synods that lives within a cultural divide between uh, what is the Bay Area, uh, which you know Colin Woodard identified as part of the great of, of the uh, of the left coast and the Central Valley and and you know off into Nevada and up to up into uh, you know the Oregon border. Not only uh, different geography and different topography, but really uh, we have these different uh, cultural foundations uh, that that really uh, speak to government wanting to, you know, we, we look to government to be different things. Uh, we look to the larger system to be different things. We either value or don't value community or individuality in different ways. And, and we really need to discover how we can be church together. Otherwise, we are going to just we're just going to miss. We're going to 
be church for some, but not for all. Mm. Yeah, thanks for saying that. One um, of the ways, one of the 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 things that Josh and I noticed about all of the pre-nominees is this um, identification that um, that there needs to be more connectedness um, between the synod office, but also between congregations. Um, how how do you think you would help congregations be more connected to each other and more connected to the synod office? More connected to the synod office. That's a tough one. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think more connected to one another. Here's something that I would think we need to do. We have lived Jeremy, you know this full well. In our conference, we have, what, 17 congregations, 16 of which are enculturated to be Lone Rangers. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely do not want to work with the other because a win for me is a loss for you. Uh, uh, you know, a, a win for you is potentially a loss for me. And we just don't play well with our neighbors. I think one of the questions we really need to ask one another is we in, a, in the call process, which is the time when congregations are both most vulnerable and most open to discovering some new things. Why don't we ask on a call form for a congregation to identify its primary missional partners? and have to name it if you know if you couldn't survive alone who would you partner with now in some congregations it would be a, a, a perhaps a, a local uh body of one of our ministry partners uh you know some uh, it may be a Presbyterian congregation, maybe a Methodist congregation, maybe Episcopalian congregation, something of that sort. You know, somebody or, or some community that we would look to partner with. In some cases, it's going to be uh, another. Uh, it's going to be another congregation uh, in the ELCA. One of the things that just leaves me heartbroken is to watch uh, congregations in our synod go through the call process knowing that they cannot afford a full-time, fully compensated clergy person, and knowing that the congregation immediately next door is also in a, a call process and can't afford a full-time, fully compensated clergy person, but they won't work together. They won't talk to one another about what it might mean to be in ministry partnership with one another. I think we just need to broach those subjects. And I think the first way to do it is just say, who, you know, who would it be for you? Uh, That's really, yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, one of the times, uh, thanks. So thank you for saying that, Pastor John. Um, one of the times the bishop's office gets involved in a congregation is when there's conflict, uh, whether it be conflict amongst the church council or between the pastor and the council, or just there's some sort of internal conflict. And, and when the bishop shows up, it's gotten pretty far ahead uh, in the conflict, you know, 
Um, what do you think your style of conflict resolution is? That's a tough one. Uh, in that, you know, in, in that context, uh, you have to listen to all the parties. You have to not favor, you, you have, you have to be an active listener. Uh, and you have to surface, uh, what is, uh, at the heart of the, you have to, I think you have to surface both what is at the heart of the conflict and what is it that holds us together rather than tears us apart. Uh, and really, uh, you know, it's, it's a two-step. It's, it's addressing the unhealthy things and it's affirming the healthy things. Uh, and there are times when we are so good at killing, you know, one of my favorite images is, you know, growing a healthy lawn. Does it mean uh, growing grass or does it mean killing weeds? Mm -hmm. uh, we oftentimes perfect, uh, you know, our herbicides, killing off the weeds, but we don't do a very good job of growing grass sometimes. Mm. And I think it's knowing how to use both of those tools when necessary, but erring on the side of, growing grass rather than killing weeds. Mm. I really like that imagery, Pastor John, um, specifically for my own context. So thank you for that. That's a, yeah. that's, that's a good, that's a good image to use. Mm. Yeah. So uh, me. <laughs> it's not original to me. <laughs> um, so as, as you know, we invited you a while ago to be on this podcast, you've had some time to think about you know what this was going to be um as you were kind of preparing yourself for this um was there any question that you thought we should ask of you is there anything you were hoping that we would ask you no no <laughs> no honestly no no, that's that. So, is there anything else that you would like us to know about you as it relates to being bishop? This is your time to to talk. Okay. Um, I am often humored by other people's perceptions of me within the synod. I think that people tend to believe I am wonkish, I am structuralist, I am. I'm a type, I'm, they, they tend to perceive me as a type A personality leader. Mm. Uh, that's not quite who I am. Uh, there are times when I have been, I have experienced enough of that culture to know what that is, but that's really not at the heart of my being. I tend to be uh, a person who is much more collegial, much more group focused, than individual focus. It is not me stuffing my agenda down another person's throat. Uh, it's 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 about discovering what the institution can do together. Uh, I just I, I've I've seen enough rolled eyes at, in synodical conversations. Uh, you know, uh, just because I have the ability to talk constitution doesn't mean that I think most problems can be solved constitutionally. 
Well, thank you. Um, uh, for all of that, that kind of ends our, our kind of long form discussions and, and going into uh, our lightning round here. Uh, we do this with anybody we interview. And, and so, um, you know, take these questions and, and answer them uh, pretty quickly. Uh, okay. Pastor John, which food can you eat every day? coffee. Oh, I should say Pinot Noir. <laughs> What's your favorite movie genre? Genre? Yeah. Action adventure. Salty, sweet, or savory? Salty. Mm. In addition to the Bible, because every pastor says the Bible, which book would you like with you on a deserted island? Jonathan Hate, The Righteous Mind. Mm. What fills your cup? Time with my wife. Mm. What depletes your cup? The administrative grind. What's your favorite holy place? On the bay, in a boat, with colleagues. What is one piece of good advice that you've been given? My mother, 60 years ago. You'll never stand any taller by cutting other people off at the knees. Mm. What does rest look like for you? Play. Uh, and yeah. finally, what do you hope God will say to you when you enter the pearly gates? Well done, good and faithful servant. Everybody, this has been the Reverend Dr. John Valentine. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, this has been the Serato Brother Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>